Welcome to the EULA 5 podcast. In this episode, our lovely curators will talk about the opening premise of their exhibition, 403 Forbidden. 403 Forbidden is a digital exhibition that explores the way identity and ownership are maintained and negotiated in digital spaces. At the apex of the digital revolution, we have become experts at building and curating our online identity, which transcends our physical limitations. As we carefully navigate sensibilities of taste and content, form judgments, and learn from immaterial interactions with one another, we establish our critical consciousness. This agency is a rite of passage. It draws us closer to our two-dimensional avatars and allows us to seek beyond the scope of their purely representational function. They are us and we are them. And we are Eula Collective. The overarching theme of our exhibition is ownership online. Hi, I'm Kalina. Hi, I'm Neo. Hi, I'm Razia. Hi, I'm Candid. And I'm Nama. The experience of uh, you know working together on this project has you know both been a thrill, especially when you're a part of a theme so enthusiastic that practices compassion and offers help. In our program, we're gaining practical experience in how to handle artworks and present them to the world in the context of an exhibition and it's something that we consistently return to is the idea of you know handling with care and being mindful of each presentational cue and how it might sit with the audience and i think that the entire building of of this exhibition has truly been exemplary of this and another thing that's been constantly popping up is the idea of multiplicity of publics and the idea of inviting these publics to participate kind of creating a sense of community which i guess is like really hard to create in the digital space (laughs) yeah (laughs) definitely i mean i hope that we do a good job of addressing all these different publics because we have you know this podcast Kalina, you created like a really cool coloring page so you know maybe that might attract you know, younger audiences and even older audiences also and you know we were, we're also mindful of like how we kind of discuss the works and you know just making sure that it's as accessible as we can you know so yeah yeah hit up that explore think, page yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly just as many ways that we can get out there and spread the word about our exhibition and you know engage different people um, I think we've done a good job of that. Yeah, exactly. And especially with the budget that we were offered to do this with, it was very challenging. We could have picked between five artists, but we decided to do three so we can make the most with the budget that we were allocated for this project. And obviously the COVID-19 pandemic has tremendously impacted our program and what we could do within it. The digital, This digital exhibition is a product of that. And we had to really quickly adapt to the environment and play by the rules. We were simultaneously the platform builders, the filters of the information, the interpreters of the work and the context. And we're, we're also the service providers to an extent. And I think like each of us was a point of connection, a point of connection to, you know, the marketing and the public. And we were a point of connection of the artists and the artwork and the artwork and the platform uh, that it was exhibited in. So it really like was a behemoth task to do this with such a small uh, time frame. And we, when we were faced with creating and inviting 
uh, artists, we, we did have to think fast and have to adapt, uh, draft all the paperwork, make sure that we're, you know, correctly digitally implementing their artwork with care onto the platform. Programming was a particularly difficult area. Um, we were considering a lot of things. Most of the ideas were great, but we simply didn't have the time to bring them to life or uh, enough budget to properly compensate anyone who lent us their time. I think we did unearth some education opportunities with this podcast and the coloring sheet that uh, Candid mentioned, but it might be a small gesture, but it would be cool if people actually printed it up and put it to use for themselves or their children and, you know, maybe, maybe share your work. <laughs> that would be yeah, fun, honestly. Especially... Yeah. Yeah. In the comment section on the website, we'd love to hear feedback on this exhibition and hear Absolutely. And create a sense of community in that way. Yeah. Exactly. You see us, <laughs> let us see you, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. another very interesting aspect I think of this experience was the way uh, it made us critically engaged with the status of digital art within the institutional setting. Do you guys remember that exhibition that we were looking at? Well, now what the fuck? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that was such a bizarre platform, I thought. And, you know, it really got me thinking about the word curator. Our minds so oftenly jump to institutions like museums and galleries. But the internet has a, you know, the strong democratic character, I think, where certain subjectivities get mixed up. But everyone does have the the right and the opportunity to create and share their work. And I've certainly read texts that claim social media and all other such platforms turn everyone into a curator of sorts. Again, the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic has truly disrupted the way of life, if not for many, if not for all. I keep hearing many in the business industry refer to as the new normal. <laughs> and I think that is like quite a funny thing to say. Kind of weird, like how people are applying the term the new normal to not just one aspect, but like like a multiple aspects. Like I've heard stories about some places they're like saying, "Oh, this is the new normal, so we don't have to be scared of it because everyone's gonna be immune uh, one day." So yeah, it's just like crazy how you think about things like that and how it's impacting our quote normal life on pro yeah i exactly mm -hmm. i think like struggling to maintain to be normal in this <laughs> right now is actually dangerously in a way complacent instead i think we should accept that it's not normal and consider what needs to be done or how can we make it this easier for everyone especially those at higher risks well, why did i mention this normal it's because it also applies to institutions in one of the essays we read in class by Jonas Bloom called Exploring the Potentials and Challenges of Virtual Distribution of Contemporary Art. It flags that digital art is not a new phenomenon at all and that it has actually been around since the 1970s. And of course, you know, we haven't been the only emerging curators that have been forced, I say forced in quotation marks, to the digital. Many institutions are also in the process of digitizing their collections and exhibitions, and it's almost like a radical divergence from a white cube setting. You know, in some ways, the experience becomes less intimidating and more accessible, which of course is like a huge benefit. There are three types of virtual exhibitions that Bloom differentiates. There is the virtual version, which is a digital facsimile of the original. The missing wing, which is kind of a digital supplementation of an existing exhibit. 
and the hyper real site, which has no physical original and exists only online. And 403 Forbidden obviously falls in the last category. I think that one of our artists' artworks, more specifically Julia Makovic, in real life, the game, is a wonderful interactive uh, piece of work that fosters the link between realness and how it is encoded in the digital realm. But it's an excellent example of digital art. And I feel that the white cube setting specifically doesn't have space or doesn't know how to incorporate such art on its own terms. So I feel like the side of creativity often is neglected in a way, if I can use that word to signify how institutions respond to this. And I think that there's like a shift going on where it's a little bit, you know, becoming more acceptable, commonplace, especially with with the restrictions that we're dealing right now. You know, these works were usually uh, unfit because of maybe their reproducibility which in a way, you know, maybe affected their resale value or their immateriality made it hard for them to be tangible. Isn't that right, Raz? Yeah, exactly, Kalina. Thank you. Let me start with a quick look at the uh, historic background of this kind of image. In the early 1970s, as you know, picture generation artists tried to critically analyze mass media. These artists were uh, exposed to the flood of images that were uh, produced by television and magazines. Additionally, they were inspired by Roland Barthes' manifesto, The Death of the Author. Uh, there's a fa famous line in Barthes' essay that uh, goes, the birth of the reader must be at the cost of the death of the author. Artists like uh, Richard Prince, Cindy Sherman, Louis Lawler, and many others were deeply inspired by this approach. Contemporary artists are still embracing this idea today by focusing on their own generation of pictures in radical ways. The circulation of images on digital platforms like social media and the concept of the poor image, which is also known as the low resolution image, are new in visual culture. They work together to, um, to suggest the new aesthetic. I think there has never been a better time to talk about this issue than now due to the COVID-19 restrictions. We see our pixelator in a meeting on Zoom or the other applications we are using. The image in digital space is prone to be stolen, copied, or manipulated in different ways. Or as Hito Eshtayer in, uh, in her article, in defense of the poor image state, the poor image is fifth generation bastard of an original image. These images can be appropriated easily. So the increasing number of images that are being uh, produced this way can challenge ownership and copyright. Another question about the poor image is its value. The class of this kind of image today is not hierarchical, but also it follows a kind of rhizomatic structure. We can use the structure for describing them. It is as important as or as attractive as other visual elements. By this, I mean pixelated images are not considered inferior anymore. And uh, the banality of the images, in addition to the often 
maybe jerky or spasmodic audio on our digital calls. It can be even more expressive than a sharp image. Some words like high and low uh, may lose their conventional meanings in this context. This generation of the image in our digital age can be overlooked or excluded anymore. Yeah, I find it interesting that you bring Hito Sero into this conversation I, because I saw her work recently at the AGO and when we were collectively thinking through the concept for 403 Forbidden, I kept like returning to her concept of the proxy. She has like a very truly interesting way of of thinking about the digital within a political and economic context. I think in the context of our exhibition, it's also really important to speak about why we chose to focus on ownership. And I think it's important to recognize the fundamental roots of the state of ownership to begin with. And because it is simultaneously an instrument of power and the site of struggle, it is the ownership of the means of production that is the sickening condition of capitalism, which forces workers to forfeit their essence, that is labor, in exchange of, for a living wage. It is the perceived ownership of stolen land, which enforces violent conflicts between settlers and First Nations that permanently alienate us from any chance of reconciliation. Uh, and as we increasingly occupy this digital space, I, I feel like ownership of self of our own digital identity is an uh, illusion that is reinforced through the material connection between person and device. Our presence online is subject to a pact that is only made known through a critical observation of our digital condition, one that is mitigated by the cycle of cognitive cultural capitalism or the post-fortist economy as often is the term. I think that cognitive labor, much like physical labor, is appropriate as a way to increase capital as knowledge and personal aesthetics become commodity for social media platforms. So the relationship of power is established and tactics that subvert this dynamic become all the more important for social justice. Absolutely. And I think if we look at claiming ownership in the digital sphere, it becomes really difficult, especially if you're looking at the way content can be shared and reshared thousands or millions of times to infinity, really. If you look at Tumblr as a really good example of this, it's a social media platform that many artists and curators use both as a way to share their work, to archive their work or their past exhibitions that they were a part of. And Lindsay Howard talks about this in their essay, The Way We Share Transparency and curatorial practice, specifically looking at the new opportunities that sites like Tumblr as a social media website, what it does to grant artists and curators as well as content creators to archive their work efficiently and be able to share it more easily and more broadly, cheaper as well. You do want to look at this sense of ownership on these social media platforms because the ownership of content that you post becomes really blurred. And as more items are shared more easily, they can also be copied without the artist or curator's permission, simply by screenshotting or downloading an image. The ownership of information and content on Tumblr then becomes really blurry. And as the ownership of images becomes more and more difficult to track down, as content is more widely shared, people often will reblog a photo or content without crediting the original sources. And from that blog, it can be widely shared and 
kind of goes out in this really quickly created web of reblogs and reposts without credit for the artist. And from my own personal experience, uh, when I was on Tumblr as a teenager, I posted a photo that ended up being reblogged a couple thousand times and then I lost track of it. But the photo itself was never credited back to me and I can't even imagine how many have viewed the photo. So if one's identity or one's image or artwork or content has been digitized or started off as digital and was digital all along, I'm beginning to wonder what this means in terms of identity and ownership in the digital age. Yeah, no, the meme culture, you know, when you were talking about the ownership of content can become blurred. I was just thinking about meme culture and how many memes I repost on a daily basis mm. to friends and whatever. And there's never, we never talk about who is the author of this. Whose mind created this hilarious thing that we're all laughing at? And I think that's both like some of the good things about the internet but it's also some of the bad things about it too i think that jaja's work to be continued essentially visualizes the precarious and certain complicated and fascinating relationship that stems from our physical images mirrored in the digital space and how we kind of forfeit you know all control of what we put on there to the forces of the web if i can i, I can term it like that well, one of the things that really fascinated me in her work was the distinction between the agent who is organizing their chaotic thoughts in search of self and the voice of the digital authority that are given embodiment the artist takes us uh, into a uniquely subjective wor world of her digital vision of memory if we don't technically own anything to the digital space, who owns it? Who owns Jaja's memories? Is Jaja the owner of the memories or is it some other kind of force? The answer usually comes quite intuitively when we're critically observing how things are distributed and our image is circulated on social media. And it's you need to sign agreements with those who own the platforms. And these companies can you know, use your image or your content for their own marketing materials without paying anything. You know, they can actually sue you, probably, I assume. And these same companies are predominantly guided by a singular perspective. And this informs their many, many biases. Right. So one of those biases is actually racial biases. Uh, last year, one of my favorite professors recommended this great book to me when I was applying to grad school. It's called Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. It's by Safia Morja Noble. She's an associate professor at the University of California in Information Studies and has also given TED Talks and lectures on the matter. So the premise of the book kind of starts with two events uh, that she experienced. In 2009, a friend of hers told her in passing, you know, you should see what happens when you Google black girls. And when she did, she was disgusted by all of the pornographic content that appeared on the first page. The second event was in 2011. She was looking for activities for her nieces, who were Black, and once again, she found pornography, dehumanization, and, you know, these were just through innocuous search terms. She also conducted other searches. So she looked at, you know, why are Black people so, and then she wanted to see what the suggested searches were. As you may have guessed, the suggestions were pretty offensive. She also typed in beautiful to see what came up in like the image search and it was mainly white women that appeared and when she searched for asian girls latina girls indigenous girls etc she also found pornography so all of this led her to, through a six-year exploration of algorithmic biases in the fields of information science machine learning and human computer in interaction a lot of people take google as being inherently neutral 
value-free objective depoliticized. They think that what rises up at the top of the search page is what's the most credible or the most popular. Interesting that you bring up this book because someone told me I should read this and it's on my, you know, reading list. It's absolutely wild when you think more critically about what you're actually given. It's not by chance. Google's algorithm is apparently very secretive and it changes every few years. I'm no software expert, but apparently it changes to accommodate these shifts, but also make sure that people are not hacking the algorithm, which is also a very interesting concept for resistance, like hacking an algorithm, hacking an account. The Sony hacking was a very interesting accident as well. And it's just kind of like, oh, that sucks. But at the same time, these, powers need to be disrupted in any way right sorry what was the sony hacking the sony hacking was uh happened like a few years ago like it was in 2014 when a group of hackers which mm -hmm. identified themselves as guardians of the peace leaked confidential data from the studio sony pictures the data included personal information about employees and their families emails between employees, information about executive salaries at the company, copies of unreleased Sony films, other important information. So at a sense, it's very damaging because as an employee, it's very uncomfortable having that information family leaked. But at the same time, this kind of hacking was a very kind of a way to subvert Sony Pictures, which is this like corporate conglomerate who's monopolizing the film industry. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned how no one really knows what the Google algorithm is because that, that's also mentioned in the book. Dr. Noble isn't a computer scientist either. She is a humanities scholar. So she kind of took that approach in her book. And she also mentions that it, it makes it hard to really critically analyze how these mechanisms work if we don't know how the algorithm works. And you know, Facebook is the same way. A lot of social media is the same way. They have proprietary closed source algorithms so yeah it just makes it hard for just all, any of us to really understand what's going on and people kind of try to guess as you said they kind of try to hack the algorithm with you know search engine optimization that's a really big very marketable skill mm -hmm. to have she kind of you know goes against this idea that you know google is neutral it's value-free it's objective depoliticized and she says that many of these technologies reflect and reproduce existing inequalities and hegemonic or you know dominant frameworks google at the end of the day prioritizes its own commercial interests. It doesn't really care about, you know, being free of biases, you know, and it's so hard to be free of biases when a lot of tech companies are made up of men and white people and people living in Western countries, right? It's going to like the biases of those groups. Dr. Noble also studied Black history, and she says that these search results are endemic to the United States as the history of the country itself. And I would also argue that, you know, in other Western countries as well. There was this news recently how Mark Zuckerberg wanted to pay people in South America less than people in, you know, certain spaces in North America, like Silicon Valley or something, for the, doing the same job, essentially. And it's because price of, of living there, he argued to, like, pay them less. And it's like... It's, it's really is a joke. Like, you know, how dare you? <laughs> this is the end of episode one. If you like what you heard, tune into the next one.